Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Hope you're having a great evening, and if you stay with us, you're going to have an even better one, because Mark has some amazing guests tonight. We want to thank, first off, though, uh, Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com, and um, take a look and, and take a listen, because the Native Storytellers is a wonderful way of preserving history and giving you insight into a culture and a time that has passed into distant memory and it's a good thing that they're out there and they can remind us of the amazing material that, that they bring forward in time through their heritage. So Mark has a great show tonight. I'm very excited about both of his guests. So this is a, a double-barreled show tonight and I, I think that he's done an amazing job. And um, Mark, I am so glad that you're here and, and you've brought with you a couple of really great guests tonight. Oh yeah, and uh, I think while we were waiting for the intro to finish, uh, you know, Mark's uh, clock started uh, dinging <laughs> at ten o'clock, and and it's like, oh, this is like, uh, you know, for whom the bell tolls kind of thing. And it's like, okay, we're going goth tonight. It's, it's great <laughs> atmospheric effect. But uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I have gotta... one of those clocks too, so I can I can certainly, you know, uh, sympathize with that. Yeah, uh, you, yeah, yours is more melodic. This is like, you know, the death knell kind of thing oh, go, going on. Like great in, introduction to discussing the afterlife tonight. So, but yeah, uh, you know, I got to do a little rant here about something. It's uh, one to say congratulations to. Uh, Benny Koshis for uh, making it to Coast to Coast uh, Sunday night. Uh, they keep moving onwards and upwards, and they're making a positive difference in so many people's lives. Um, you know, next week uh, we'll be broadcasting from the cornfield that surrounds the INS office. Uh, don't, don't miss that one. Uh, that, that, next week's going to be just uh, a lot of fun. 
And you know, this this week I'm uh, broadcasting from Laputa, and I'm drinking uh, grain alcohol and rainwater with Group Captain Mandrake. Uh, it's been a rough week, so it's uh, <laughs> I need some purity of essence. You know, maybe our friends from Arlington, Texas, or the town of Barnsley, England, can help out with that. But uh, you know what? Yeah, um, Barbara. You know, last night's show was terrific uh, with you and Gary Wayne and his discussions of biblical prophecies. Um, it, it, it was a great lead-in for our two guests tonight. Uh, I don't uh-huh. know if there's any, any, any real conscious effort to, you know, for the, with the programming from last night and. And tonight, uh, since we did uh, Gary, uh, you know, got him booked a couple months ago. Um, but there, you know, it could, could have been more of a subconscious desire to connect our three guests uh, with some form of continuity, which is you know, usually lacking when I am working with multiple guests, but. Uh, we we have a great show lined up. Um, and anyhow, uh, you may have seen our first hour guest on ancient aliens. Uh, the episode was aliens and deadly cults. Uh, he, uh, Dr. Mark Mirabello uh, was also on America's Book of Secrets episode entitled "Deadly Cults." Uh, maybe you were one of his history students at Shawnee State University. Um, uh, Dr. Mirabello is our guest, and he recently published A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife. And it's a really thought provoking book, uh, uh, and we aren't going to get to all of it tonight, but fortunately, he's going to be returning on Monday, July 29th to. Tell us a little bit more about the book, and probably get into some other neat materials. So, just want to bring Mark on. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Excellent. And again, thank you for the opportunity. It's an honor to be on the show. And by the way, thank you Report. for the plug for Shawnee State University because uh, <clears throat> we've been uh, driving ourselves into the ground. We have a financial crisis going on, so this will help give it life. <laughs> Free advertisement. <laughs> Sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I I think they have a um, excellent history professor. But so and, and so you can wow us and ho- hopefully get some new uh, students w- wanting to attend classes in Portsmouth, Ohio, right down the river from me. Let's hope so. That'd be very good. Um, yeah. I've taught there many years, and it's an enjoyable experience because I'm an old-fashioned generalist, and it allows me to do a wide variety of courses that I could not do mm-hmm. at tradi- a larger, more tra- uh, traditional universities. Yeah, it, 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 and the Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife is uh, general. Uh, it's goes into you know, detail about 
um, well, just how different cultures at different periods viewed you know, the afterlife, heaven and hell. We're getting into all kinds of you know thought-provoking uh, topics t- tonight. But yeah, yeah, you, know, you are kind of a generalist, but you, you know, you, you get us to think and make us aware that you know, just the what Judeo-Christian concepts of heaven and hell are are the uh only uh, you know, uh versions out there there's uh, uh, these ideas have been around for a long time uh, by the way if i could interject several points on that because um sure. in fact just the other night i was rather stunned i was having a conversation about this book and the person who had read it um raised the question like since there were so many different paths, uh, in fact, for example, in Buddhism, they're over. They talk about over eighty-nine thousand paths to enlightenment. Um, this person seemed to think that it created skepticism and doubt that that somehow these traditions are illegitimate. And in fact, um, there's a review of my book at Amazon at the UK version, United Kingdom version, Britain. One of the posters basically was not really attacking the book, but acted as if all of these diverse ideas uh, are somehow undermining belief in the afterlife. And I want to make it very clear to your listeners, um, from all this research, and I used over 900 works, I'm absolutely convinced there's another side. Uh, And the reason for this, uh, in fact, uh, regrettably, I think our uh, culture uh, tends to be, well, let me just say it this way. There are several reasons. For example, Aristotle's two-value system, something's right or wrong. And, of course, we, we are dominated by, and I'm not criticizing this, but a monotheistic worldview which says basically there's one path. And, mm-hmm. um, in fact, in contrast, for example, in Eastern traditions, uh, they think they would view, for example, truth similar to the way when a police officer goes to an accident scene He'll collect information from all witnesses, knowing that no person who thinks all the people there, they all think they know the truth, but no one will have the complete truth. And there are just many versions of the truth, and I think all are equally legitimate. Uh, Now, again, that somehow is disturbing to the West, but even within the context of uh, Christianity, a lot of Christians don't realize there's a wide variety of traditions within Christianity. Out on the fringes, you'd have, for example, uh, the Church of... Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and also the Church of the New Jerusalem, which is Emmanuel Swedenborg. And by the way, if you have any Christians out there, the most detailed description of the other side from a Christian perspective is the, are the works of Emmanuel Swedenborg, especially Heaven and Hell. And I, it, this is the, usually the title of the book that's given in that form. And what is intriguing about it, I'll mention this really, really quickly, and um, um, Sweden, well, we all know, for example, that frogs enjoy the swamp, but would be miserable in a beautiful pasture, green grass, and flowers. And in Emanuel Swedenberg's, he claimed to have seen the other side at length. Basically, the people that go to hellish regions, they go there because they're drawn there, just like the frog enjoys the swamp and the flies and the mosquitoes. Uh, Swedenberg describes this sort of dark, looks like almost an urban slum, hellish area, 
where people prey upon one another, steal, hurt, rape, but they go there because they're so-called ruling love. They enjoy violence and crime. Uh, Aleister Crowley, the occultist, talked about that he would uh, like to go to a place where there are basically loose women and, and drugs. And this is essentially what happens to those people. And then the nice people, the good people, they gravitate towards this beautiful area uh, which looks like a, um, there's a pleasant town with friendly, nice people. And by the way, Swedenberg claims that here we get our face from our parents. But in the next world, your ruling love uh, determines your features. So, for example, an elderly sweet lady who passes away and goes to the next world and goes to a heavenly realm, she becomes this beautiful woman. Whereas evil people, they take on a sort of a gnarled face with a really ugly countenance because their evil souls are expressing uh, the soul is showing itself in the appearance, which is why Swedenborg says that hell is dark because uh, God is sort of more or less having mercy on, the, on these people down there so they don't have to look at how ugly their neighbors are. Uh, and then in the case of the Mormons, which again, which is still a Christian tradition, uh, the whole goal, although Mormons have several levels of heaven, by the way, they really don't have eternal damnation in the Latter-day Saints because they have the outer darkness, a hellish region, but you can escape it. All you have to do is convert and you can leave hell. And uh, But the highest heaven, they have several heavens, people literally become gods. Uh, in fact, they say the Christian god... As was originally a man and became a godlike being, and as he was, we are now, and as he is, we will be. If we go through these various rituals in the Mormon temple, you also have to practice marriage for eternity. Uh, you can become a godlike being. And by the way, oddly enough, George Romney, uh, I should say Mitt Romney, George was his father, lost the presidency, but he's followed all the rules for Mormonism, so he'll be a god someday. Um, <laughs> so, again, this wide variety of traditions. And I was in no way trying to throw throw skepticism on these people. I don't think you are either. Yeah. And, and incidentally, I should mention that I think modern Western thought has been stunted by science. Now, that's shocking to most people when I say that. But, see, essentially what it is is a simplification process. Uh, modern scientific thought starts to emerge in the Renaissance of people like Galileo and people like Kepler and then Newton, of course, although Newton himself was religiously pious and so was even Galileo. And um, um, it's a simplification. And basically it says that only matter and energy exist and nothing else does. And, in fact, um, 19th century scientists, by the way, were not as uh, hostile to metaphysics and religion as people are now in the scientific community. Uh, in fact, um, Darwin attended seances with the novelist George Eliot, which would be unthinkable today. And uh, my own department, which is actually in social sciences at Shawnee State University, I had several really militant atheists there. And uh, I remember one time, this has happened years ago. I'm walking to my office, and I hear this fellow professor. He's leaning over, talking to his then six-year-old son, and he's explaining to him 
there is no God. He's telling a six-year-old this in a very matter-of-fact tone, looking at the boy in the eye, pointing the index finger. There is no God. There is no God. And, of course, I have a kind of bizarre sense of humor, so I had to stop at his door, and I looked in and said, well, gee, I guess Santa Claus and Easter money are totally out of the question then. So, again, uh, <laughs> so um, <laughs> now I should mention, by the way, though, that, again, stop me if I go on too long here rambling, but the um, the Western people, typically, if they do believe in the afterlife, it's it's kind of a pretty straightforward notion. Not that it's wrong, but it's only one, and it's connected to an all-powerful God, uh, faith, typically, an ethical behavior system, and the existence of an immortal soul. And um, all of these ideas are relatively recent in the human experience, uh, which I think uh, people don't realize, although the odd part is the oldest religious belief is in monotheism. You'll see in older textbooks they'll say it's polytheism, but it's not. Uh, the Twa of the Congo, uh, typically called pygmies, but it's not that it's really a, I'm putting not the real the term they would like. They believe the only divine entity is the forest, and they when they think they have bad times, they awaken the forest, thinking that he is asleep because mostly things happen to them that are bad when they are asleep. Uh, and notice that line of reasoning. Humans typically reason to the unknown from the known. And uh, so the original, there's this one God, and then you get into the civilizations, and they develop uh, polytheism. Uh, and they become anthropomorphic, where taking on human traits. But then you get into the emergence of these absolute rulers, like the so-called king of kings in ancient Persia, and that was his title. The Christians took the title from the Iranian uh, leader, the king of kings, or the pharaoh in ancient Egypt. And people reason if there's one all-powerful person who controls everything in the empire, maybe God is that way. And then you get the emergence of this notion of an all-powerful, omnipotent God. Um, and oddly enough, that's starting to fray at the edges now, because we have this modern, uh, pluralistic, sort of democratic society, and we're starting to, some people are turning on the notion of one totalitarian God, and you're getting in places like America and Europe uh, the reemergence of polytheistic traditions. Uh, I wrote a work on one group, Odinism, called the Odin Brotherhood, where they believe in multiple deities <clears throat> who actually live in our universe. Uh, they're not all powerful beings, and they live here. And in fact, um, they believe they're on Earth all the time. Uh, they come here for visits, and if you encountered one, he'd be really strong and beautiful or handsome, but they're not all powerful. In fact, you mentioned uh, reference to ancient aliens. Um, when, you, when the people do those shows, they film you for about four hours, and they take clips. And at one mm -hmm. point I was saying that, um, in fact where the whole show is based on the fact that aliens came to Earth long ago and were mistaken for gods. <laughs> I said the reverse could possibly be true, that gods were here and were mistaken for aliens by us. <laughs> they cut that out, of course, because it undermines the whole theme of the show. Um, so, um, but I've always been intrigued um, by knowledge itself, and I think the more information you have, um, the better position you are.
And and I should also throw in again, if maybe going on too much, but um, I closed the book with kind of a paraphrase of Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was not only a philosopher, but a mathematician and the father of probability theory and mathematics. And he famously, he says in his original form, it's based on religious faith, but I reword it. And I say that um, uh, if there's two positions. You can completely deny the afterlife and say it's just hokum and humbug. Uh, and if you are right, you gain nothing from being right because everyone will basically just not exist. So the believers and the atheists will end up the same. So, uh, But if it is true, you should potentially study it and prepare yourself for the next side, uh, because you have a lot to gain knowing what to do. Uh, and I should mention in um, Tibetan Buddhism, so-called diamond vehicle Buddhism, People, uh, they describe what happens. There's a bardo state of 49 days, typically, between death and rebirth. Atheists are in a really bad position because they don't realize, they can't believe they're dead. They're so convinced there is no afterlife. They're in a kind of darkness, and they think they're in a coma or having a horrible dream. Whereas, uh, and it, it takes them to a lower rebirth. Uh, because they are in a state of panic. And incidentally, in many Eastern traditions, above all, it's important when you're going through after death to remain calm and in a state of equilibrium. Not a lot of excitement, not a lot of um, uh, fear. That's a typical Oriental approach, though, that calm is the best, and that's going to take you to a better place. And I, I should also mention that the, you don't, you, we lack the sort of absolutes in a lot of Eastern traditions and old traditions. Uh, Westerners think it's all heaven or hell forever, although we normally don't think it through. Uh, for example, if someone went to heaven, would they ultimately become corrupted after billions of years of bliss and happiness? Would they become bored and corrupted, because oddly enough, we have the story of one of the rebel angels, uh, Lucifer, got bored out of pride and tried to overthrow God. So wouldn't other entities do that? And of course, in the case of hell, um, billions or trillions of years of torment, I mean, um, wouldn't that eventually alter the person who was sent there? Um, and by the way, I should not, again, not to throw in all of these anecdotes, but I still have this fond memory from teaching years ago. And I was talking about the eternity of hell in Western traditions, which, oddly enough, is an invention in Christianity. It's the first culture to develop the concept of an eternal hell, although not all Christians buy into it. Uh, universalists say that even Satan is eventually saved. Uh, at any rate, I was talking about this, and there was this well-dressed non-traditional student used to come into class five minutes late she was in her early 40s and i always assumed she was coming from a job she's always dressed up she never said a word she'd take notes and then leave and i mentioned that personally i was saying that i i can't imagine anything anyone could do to me that i'd want to torture them for eternity maybe a long time but not for an eternity and she raised her hand and was very focused very articulate and the class got really quiet. You could just hear a pin drop. And she, in a very matter-of-fact way, said there were certain offenses that were so heinous, so horrible, that people deserve to burn forever in hell. 
And I say everyone was just listening to this, and I've never seen anyone lose an audience so fast because her very next sentence was how her ex-husband deserves to burn forever in hell. (laughs) 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 And she just lost the audience. So I I better let you ask a few more. I'll go on and on. (laughs) Um, uh, Again, I always joke I have verbal diarrhea. I'll just go on and on and on. Okay. Um, uh, 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 You you have 900 historical resources listed in the bibliography of your book. For an example, just to continue with some of this information, you're talking about the Mormons really don't uh, believe in a hell. You mentioned um, another example. It's similar to it. Uh, St. John the Divine talks about the 144,000 that are saved so and it's like out of the uh, billions of people who ever lived um i doubt i'll be part of that really small percentage uh you know, like miss woo woo the red dragon rider vera and kelly the barbecue lady you know good part you know, i would say they they would make it but who who is saved i mean yeah, you said even even Satan um, is you know, going to be forgiven, and you know, he gets to return to heaven. Uh, so, or is yeah, that's one of the really neat things about your book is you have all these just different resource materials from hundreds, you know, a couple thousands of years ago, where. Uh, Different cultures at different periods have various views of the same subject. Well, I should mention, for example, uh, people don't realize originally in Christianity there were all these debates about the nature of the Christ, uh, the historical Jesus, the teachings. For example, um, even though tradition says Matthew's the oldest gospel, we're rather certain Mark was because it's the simplest one, and also over 660 verses of Mark appear word for word in Luke and Matthew. They were clearly adding material to Mark, which was in front of them. And I should also mention that uh, they intentionally altered the translations to cover this up. There's, it's rather curious how often uh, Jehovah's Witnesses get into this. It, there does seem to be a disinformation campaign with the uh, scriptures of the Christians where things will be mistranslated. Uh, for example, the word cross never really appears in the Bible, yet it appears in our translations. And that's why the witnesses translate that as the stake. And by the way, um, there are several references in the New Testament where it appears as if Jesus is hanged on a tree and not crucified, the way the Gospels say. Now, you may say, how could that happen? It appears as if the oldest works in the New Testament are the letters of Paul. And then the Gospels, although they're traditionally dated to the first century B.C., are almost certainly much older, because early Christians, such as Justin Martyr, he's completely unaware of our Gospels. He never quotes them at all. And then if we only had the letters of Paul, Christianity would be completely different. He doesn't mention any miracles except the resurrection. Uh, Mary plays a really uh, marginal role. Uh, by the way, in general, the New Testament mentions Pontius Pilate more than Mary, 
although the Catholics have focused on the Mary aspect often. So we get all of these, oh, and most famously, the Book of Revelation, which incidentally, Eastern Orthodox churches do not view as scriptural. They'll read it, but because they're Greek speakers historically, it's really obvious to any Greek speaker, whoever wrote the Book of Revelations did not write uh, the Gospel of John as well, because the style is so different. We don't notice that in our translations. Um, but at any rate, uh, there's a famous passage, we've all heard it, Behold a pale horse, the rider's name, the rider's name is Death. That's not what huh? it says in the original Greek. It says, Behold a pale green horse, or light green horse. Now, why was that removed and changed? See, that's why you get into a lot of these conspiracy theories. It's part of the Antichrist plot to delude us. Um, and I can see many evangelicals think we're at the end times because it really does, on occasion, appear that our belief systems be manipulated for some final catastrophe if you're coming from a Christian perspective. By the way, our oldest manuscript of the book of Revelation gives the number of the beast as 616, not 666, uh, which changes the game, again, rather substantially. Now, when I mention all these original ideas were open in the beginning, uh, Origen was a second century uh, Christian who apparently, incidentally, castrated himself. He was so pious, he thought that um, the existence of his genitals were causing him to have sinful thoughts. Strangely enough, that's been repeated in modern times, Heaven's Gate, which, of course, the popular press, when they all committed suicide in 1997, demonized them as a bunch of crazies. Eight of the men there had gotten surgical castrations because they were thought that sex was an animal trait that would limit you into becoming a transhuman, if you will. Uh, that's what they're trying to become. We were born at a higher level. Um, by the way, in their system, um, the transhuman, which go to a place called Tila, the evolutionary level above human, um, they will be um, above us as we are above uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, and I always say in my classes, Ohio State Buckeye fans. Uh, I, I need I need a left track here for these things to work. But at any rate, because uh, I'm in southern Ohio and it's only 90 miles away, that that works. Mm -hmm. But um, um, the, these issues were openly debated. What um, what happens? And by the way, Jesus never actually says kingdom of heaven anywhere. He uses the word Uranus, which is heaven. It also refers to a pagan god. He clearly didn't mean that. But it's. Um, Sometimes you look at the what he's originally saying to us, and it appears as if he's saying, become as I am. Um, these are the teachings. But, um, oh, and this I should mention, the Skopsi, they were an 18th century Russian sect that apparently still exists. They actually, remember Jesus talks about, um, uh, or I should say John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, one will come after me who will baptize with fire. Well, the Skopsi from Russia, who also thought that the Messiah returned in the 18th century and was in Russia, um, they practiced what they call baptism of fire. And literally, they burn off the genitals of men or part of the genitals of women as well as the breasts. Um, and they thought that the primal sin is sex, which incidentally, Mother Ann Lee, 
uh, the United Society of Believers in the Second Coming. You all know them as, everyone knows them as the Shakers. They're a really fascinating group. Uh, she was an 18th century illiterate woman from England. It, it's, she was a curious person because everybody that seemed to meet this woman was astonished by her. And the fundamental teaching of the Shakers, uh, and they still exist, although they're down to just a handful, which is really curious because she had prophesied that in the future the Shakers will decline so much in size, they will be so few there won't be enough to carry a casket, and then they'll start to grow again. They didn't practice castration or anything like that, but they taught absolute gender equality between men and women and also absolutely no sexual activity whatsoever, and they followed the moral rules of Jesus absolutely. Uh, often in Western churches, they'll say, even the minister will say, I'm a sinner and Jesus still loves me. Well, the Shakers followed all the rules and were really strict about it. And, uh, but, of course, they had trouble perpetuating themselves because they weren't reproducing hence the decline. And oddly enough, the, today there's about, I think, four elderly people left, and they're almost afraid to admit new members because they're worth millions of dollars. They own so much real estate, um, and they're afraid people will try to join just to get the money, which is probably what will happen. And incidentally, these surviving members still bake their own bread and sweep their own floors and live very simply. Um, but there, there was an early uh, Valerian also taught this, that sex was the primal sin that kept people out of heaven in Christianity. Um, and in fact, the, if you look at Genesis, see, we again mistranslated the tree of knowledge. Again, rabbis know this. The Hebrew word to know is the same verb as to have sex, same verb. That's intentional. They'll have English translations where they'll have Abraham knew his wife Sarah. Well, that's why they use no. It's because it's the same word. And in the uh, Kabbalah and Talmud, which are commentaries by rabbis on the Torah, those are the first five books of the Bible, uh, that literally Eve has sex with the devil, uh, the serpent. They don't use the word devil, but the serpent. And that's the first sin. Um, and then she has sex with Adam. And uh, now, oddly enough, though, in, Christ, in, in Judaism, the first commandment that God gives in Genesis is be fruitful and multiply. That's why Judaism has never condemned sex uh, in, a legitimate, in a legitimate context. They don't say have sex with everybody, but they, you're commanded to marry and have children. Uh, in fact, pious rabbis in the Hasidic tradition have an obligation to have sex with their wives on the Sabbath. Um, it's an obligation, I mean, a, a responsibility. Uh, that's why some years ago there was all this debate, was Jesus married? Well, in fact, if you know anything about Judaism, that's what almost it, the Jews actually taught at that time, that a Jewish man who didn't marry was committing a greater sin than a killer, because a killer kills someone who had a chance to live, but if you don't have children, you prevent um, life from taking place. So... Um, but, um, again, these wide traditions and uh, uh, also, by the way, what happens soon after death. Uh, Raymond Moody, some years ago, had that really uh, uh, interesting work. He was, he's got a medical degree as well as a degree, I think it's in either psychology or philosophy, Ph.D. And as a doctor, he was noticing 
people were discussing the same experience when they died and were brought back. And mm-hmm. this becomes the book Life After Life. Um, and um, so I think that's the title of it. I suddenly have a mental block here. But it's interesting, anyone who studies Eastern traditions would say that the Moody book has it wrong. I know that sounds curious, because in the, again, Tibetan Book of the Dead, which has a really detailed analysis, and I describe it in the book at length, although I simplify it, um, Easterners have a tendency not to say anything very simply, and I take pride in the fact I can take the complex and make it clear. Well, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, when you die, and it's a process, it's not a moment of death, um, you go through a period where you experience what they call the, the clear light of the void. And it's brighter than a thousand suns, and it's louder than a thousand lightning strikes. And most people will shrink back from it. But if you go into the light, it is release. It's nirvana. You'll stop the endless cycle of rebirth. Most will shrink back, and then they'll experience several days of heavenly beings, visions. I'm actually simplifying. There's other steps as well. But they'll see these beautiful entities. And the Tibetans will say it's based on the contents of your mind. A Christian will see Jesus or an angel. A a Muslim will see an angel or perhaps Muhammad. uh, But then after several days of this, you start to experience hellish beings. Here's what's interesting. According to the Tibetans, a lot of people think they're in heaven the first few days because of the beautiful beings, but they say you're not. And don't be seduced by it. Don't um, embrace the entities. And then after several days, you start to experience hellish beings, and the Tibetans say, don't be afraid because they're not really, you're not really in hell. And then they talk about the process. Again, I'm making it simpler, but you eventually go to one of six possible realms of existence based on your behavior in the past and um, so forth, uh, your karma and all that. But I should mention, here's what's confusing in the West, is that, in fact, uh, a lot of Americans throw around the word reincarnation, which is technically incorrect. We should use transmigration of souls. Because reincarnation is what happened to Jesus. He got his body back. And also we talk about karma. But most Christians don't understand how it works. Uh, we think that if you are a uh, good person, your good karma it negates your negative karma, and you go up. But that's not how it works, because the East says that every completed action produces karma. So, for example, if you walk a disabled person across the street and help them, you will produce an entire life. A, a future life that will be good for that simple act of generosity that lasted perhaps a minute and a half. If you do something bad, insult someone, hurt them, ridicule them, um, uh, steal, whatever, you produce an entire life that's going to be bad. And uh, so your life right now, in fact, all your listeners, according to the East, I'm not trying to say, uh, deal with beliefs, not facts here. I'm not trying to say that East is right and West is wrong, just giving the ideas. Um, your life here is producing thousands and thousands of lives. Um, and see, that's what 
the diamond vehicle Buddhism is about, Buddhism in Tibet, it's an attempt to short-circuit the system, game it, if you will, and to achieve liberation more quickly with special knowledge. This is a common notion in religions. They'll have the teachings, but then they'll tell you how to basically defeat it. Uh, in Christianity, in evangelical Protestantism, technically, if you are a sinner, you go to hell, but they say if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you beat the system and you go to heaven even if you're a sinner. So we see this in many, many traditions. Um, and, uh, but in the, and I should also mention that in the, uh, when the Buddha talks about lives, there's a one statement where a disciple asks him about a, another life. And the Buddha is saying, that don't, don't worry about it. And he points to one of the Himalayan mountains, which is thousands of miles or feet high. And he says, see this mountain? If we could collect your skeletons from all your previous lives, it'd be higher than this. So when you have Westerners claiming that they're, uh, they remember being Henry VIII in their previous life and they think this is really interesting, the Tibetans and the Easterners in general, Hindus as well, Jains as well, say that everybody, everyone listening to this tonight has been a king, a queen, a god, a goddess, an insect, a scorpion, a lion, a lioness, a devilish character. We've all done it already. Now, that's why there's a tradition in the East. You must always be nice to people because the person who's hurting you may have been your mother in a future, in a past life. And the mother symbolizes the ultimate act of generosity. She goes through nine months of discomfort. She gives birth in pain and blood, but she still takes care of the child and loves it. And that's the symbol of generosity. So... Um, but again, these, these concepts we throw around in the West of the East tend to be really way too simplified. Um, and if you come back as a god, and you can, in, in fact, in the Jain religion, which is an ancient religion from India, uh, Westerners were originally confused and thought it was a sect of Hinduism. It's not. Uh, they say there's more gods in the universe than there are humans. And we've all been gods. Uh, and um, we'll come back again and again and again and again and again. That's why the East tends to view rebirth as a kind of burden, and they're trying to escape the endless rebirth. Uh, strange enough, I had a student in my class this past semester who came up after class and told me that she was um, uh, of, of Bonnie and Clyde. She was Bonnie in the, in the Depression era, the bank robber, mm -hmm. killer, I should say robber, um, and uh, I said, well, I hope you weren't because you're going to pay for that at some future <laughs> time. Uh, you know, we, we, we think, uh, you know, and by the way, in uh, the East, um, the word that we would translate evil, they actually tra it means more ignorance because if you actually know the consequences of your action, no one would ever commit an evil deed because, again, the consequences are always there. Uh, and that's how they view karma. It's not a God punishing them. It's the consequences of your act. It's like wetting your finger and putting it into a light socket. You die. God's not punishing you there. You've done something stupid, and you pay. It's the consequence of an ignorant action. Um, so, um, again, once you start dealing, and I should mention, by the way, because uh, people will ask the question, well, gee, if there are all these different ideas, which one do we uh, embrace? 
And there's a tradition in uh, Hinduism, uh, the Yoga Vasistha is a text, and it literally says that you will encounter what you expect. In other words, the Comanche Indian who died in the 19th century really does go to the happy hunting ground with the bison and cherry juice, and the Christian goes to a heaven. And the Muslim goes to his heaven, and the Hindu to his. Uh, so you literally encounter what you expect. So, uh, you know, just choose an interesting one and focus on it. Uh, but they're all, they're all there's, there's perhaps many paradises and bad places on the other side. Now, what's interesting about the East, the bad places are never forever. For example, if you commit heinous crimes that land you in hell. The Jains, for example, the Hindus have hellish regions, the Buddhists do. You will eventually exhaust the karma that got you there, and you'll be released. And you come back as a god, even, or a human, after you've exhausted the, the bad karma. Um, nothing is ever uh, beyond redemption in the East. Uh, and strangely enough, too, um, if you become a god, you'll be a god for several million years, but then when your good karma is used up, you fall. And they say that most gods are reborn much lower because they become corrupted by bliss and power. Um, look what happened to the Clintons. That's a joke, but I don't mm -hmm. know if it's going to work with this crowd. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, but, but again, happiness and power, they have a corrupting influence. So, um, uh, again, these wide... Uh, oh, and I should also mention, here's what's really confusing to the West as well. Um, and I've always been fascinated by this concept. In fact, um, it was discussed in the West by McTaggart, who, strangely enough, was also mentioned a member of a secret society called the Apostles at Cambridge University. He was a philosopher early 20th century. And um, he called it um, uh, basically, well, it's called by us today, block time or eternalism. And it's found um, um, in many different places. In fact, it's, it's found in the Kurt Vonnegut book. Um, so let me forget the name of it. The, um, well, at any rate, but there's a, the most, Kurt Vonnegut's most famous novel has this character who becomes detached in time. Um, at any rate, uh, in block time, all time exists for, simultaneously, forever. Uh, humans are like we stand by a river and watch the passage and flow of the water, and we see water passing, but they say the gods see the entire river at once, so the past, present, and future. Now, what this means in effect is that somewhere right now, um, everyone who's listening, their great-great-grandmother is a two-year-old child playing on the floor. And somewhere right now, Jesus is being taken to be murdered by the Romans. Somewhere right now, World War II is still going on. And um, this is called, again, block time or eternalism. And it's been discussed in Western thought as well. In fact, um, there's one uh, um, um, modern physicist who writes about it. He's a British fellow who lives in France, and he discusses it at length. Um, and he says that basically we passage of time is a is kind of a, a myth 
because our only evidence of the past is our memory of it, and our only evidence of the future is our belief in it. But in fact, um, it's all it's all happening endlessly. And in fact, as soon as you die here, you just start over again. You 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 go back as a baby, and it's going to be your birthday, and you start again. And your parents are there, and they're happy with the new child, and you you go through the process again. Uh, Uspensky, who's the Russian occultist, uh, wrote a novel about a character who realizes that this is happening to him. And, um, uh, of course, Uspensky argued that it's possible to break out of this, but uh, that's one of his points. Uh, but for normally we all are, are again, this endless passage of time. And in fact, I even have this chapter in the book where I talk about, and I'm not trying to disparage religion, but again, even if there's no God and no um, heaven and hell, there's still a possibility you have an afterlife. For example, block time is one. You just endlessly come back. Also, there's the notion of eternal recurrence, which the Friedrich Nietzsche bought into, as well as the ancient Babylonians, who reasoned that all that uh, given uh, finite possibilities and eternal time, history just repeats itself endlessly. It may take billions of years, but we've already done this program endless number of times, and we'll do an endless number of times again. This universe will be destroyed or change, and then in the cycle of time, it all repeats. It, it, it really is true that uh, it was said uh, by earlier thinkers, uh, I think it was Huxley who first said, if you put a monkey in front of a keyboard and he just endlessly hits the keys, he will eventually, over eternity, write all the plays of Shakespeare, given eternity. And frankly, a lot less time, probably all those Bill O'Reilly books. Mm-hmm. Uh, humor's, humor doesn't work on a podcast, I don't know, but I can't resist <laughs> it. That's how I, I teach to keep him awake. Um, so... Um, yeah, the ki- uh, killing anyway, Jesus, he, killing Patton. Yes, yes. Uh, I can pick on O'Reilly because he got in some bad times there with the Fox scandals. But um, uh, although I've always, as someone who labors over books, takes me years to write them. I always dislike these people who get bestsellers by having someone else write the book for them. Um, <laughs> that's a growing, uh, which is essentially what he's doing, and he sold a lot of books. Um, uh, I don't know if you recall this. There was a scandal back in the uh, 1990s, I believe. Um, there was a television program called Dynasty, and you remember the right. actress Joan Collins? Yeah, and uh, yeah. her real her real sister actually was a novelist. And then Joan Collins was really famous from the not only her earlier movie roles and so forth, but from the Dynasty program. So they gave her a contract to write a novel. And then the publishers were stunned when she insisted on writing it. And they tried to void the contract because they wanted to hire a ghostwriter, <laughs> thinking that they had no evidence she could write. And um, But then again, this is our modern fraud, if you will. Oh, and I, I mentioned earlier, because I was talking about science, I should uh, see a lot of things are packaging in our modern world. Uh, for example, you'll get People will say, you know, they'll ridicule the biblical fundamentalist or they'll ridicule the pygmy hunter and gatherer in the forest or the San Bushman in the Kalahari. 
and they think, you know, we're the height of everything, our modern world. But strangely enough, from a certain context, a lot of scientific thought, if you look at it, is actually utterly ridiculous. Literally, modern science teaches that hydrogen, over a long, long, long time, turns into humans. <laughs> I know that sounds peculiar, but that's what they're teaching, because they're saying there's this primal atom, the Big Bang Theory, that explodes producing hydrogen and helium and lithium, and eventually out of this, the stars form, and out of the stars, planets eventually form on the outskirts of the stars, and then the planets cool, and you'll get sort of somehow organic molecules forming and microorganisms coming into being, and then through natural selection that Darwin told us about, the fittest survive, which is just a tautology that the fittest survive, and then eventually you get higher and higher entities and you get humans. So acting completely on its own, hydrogen over a long, long period of time turns into uh, humans, which, of course, is, seems patently ridiculous. Uh, although, again, who knows um, how we got here and where we're going. Um, we use the word skeptic in our language, but the original Greek word, met someone who suspends all judgment. So not only doubting religion, as we typically use it, but also even scientific thought. And um, I'm rather amused by these people who claim they can, they can write books on what's happened in the first 50 seconds after the Big Bang occurred. Uh, right, and, uh, you know, yes. And by the way, we know, I, I like Plato's Allegory of the Cave, where he talks about the, the prisoner... Uh, tied up, chained up, and he sees shadows on the wall from lights behind him, and he thinks that's reality. We have no idea what's going on. If our galaxy, according to modern estimates, is the size of a dime, the entire known universe would go out about, I think it's four miles. So we're only seeing a fraction. We think we're seeing what's out there, but who knows? Um, there's also something called gravity lensing, They've known about this for decades. Apparently, uh, the stars are altering the appearance of the light, so we're seeing literally mirages and hallucinations. Some of the things we're looking at are not really there. They're just caused by gravity lensing, similar when you see a mirage. So um, I should also mention the ancient Greeks. I kind of like this. I'm not saying it's true, but um, they said we lived in the world cave that, in fact, if you go out far enough, you're going to encounter a solid wall. Uh, we're just in this little cloistered uh, area. Uh, you'll see that idea in the Bible, although they, they cover it up with the translations. When God creates the firmament of heaven, that's the sky, he lifts the firmament up and separates the waters above from the waters below. The ancients believed that, this is also from Egypt, that the entire known universe is actually where we are, is like a bubble in a cosmic sea, and the sky is solid. And that's where the water from Noah's flood comes from, because God opens up the oh. throne of heaven, and the waters fall from above. By the way, rabbis claim that the waters at Noah's flood were hot, which is, I've always been intrigued by the Christians use the Jewish Old Testament, but they don't say, read what the rabbis say it says. Uh, that's why the boat has an unusual shape, the ark. You know, we're simply designed to keep out not only the float, but to keep out the um, hot water. So it has no windows huh. and so on and so forth. 
Um, yeah. And in fact, there's all, any number of these um, beliefs that uh, you find among, for example, the rabbis say there's no commandment that says thou shalt not steal. Even though we think there is, they say that refers to man stealing, basically taking a slave uh, or kidnapping. And the reason they say that, because in rabbinical law, the penalty for breaking any of the Ten Commandments is death, and said that God's not going to kill a shoplifter, basically. Uh, so it must be a more serious crime. Which reminds me, you'll hear endlessly, America calls itself a Christian country. Well, you can legally mm-hmm. break eight, eight of the Ten Commandments in the United States. It's been that way since really, uh, well, most of it from the 19th century, but ultimately even in the 20th century as well, when... They essentially legalized adultery, used to carry the death penalty. And uh, we still had laws against adultery in the 1950s and 60s, and there are probably still a few states that have them on the books, but people don't pay attention to them anymore. Um, In fact, oddly enough, uh, West Virginia, which is nearby, and also I think Michigan still, fornication laws are still on the books. Technically, if you fool around outside of premarital sex, it's a crime. And people don't realize it. Every once in a while, someone will know this and they'll call the police and get an, like an ex-boyfriend arrested <laughs> who's living with a new girl. Um, <laughs> we have all these laws and people don't realize uh, they're still out there. Periodically, the House of Commons in Britain will go through their laws and eliminate obsolete ones. But we just keep passing them. They just keep adding up you know, more and more and more. Uh, which reminds me, when we talked about ethics, um, I already mentioned that, for example, in Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity, ethics in, in Islam become very important. What's really interesting to me is ethics only become a factor in the afterlife when the rise of civilizations. Hunters and gatherers may never have a hell, first of all, and um, there's no punishment on the other side for sin. And everybody typically goes typically goes to the same place. It's typically in the West, or uh, uh, but it's on this world somewhere. And these are the original, probably the original belief system of humans. And it's kind of suspicious that the ethical component into the afterlife emerges with civilizations, because civilizations produce kings and aristocrats and hierarchy and inequalities of wealth and power, and it appears to be a way of controlling the masses. Um, say, okay, this man is evil, and he's wealthy and lives in a palace, but don't worry, God will make him pay in the next world. And you'll, you are miserable, and you have leprosy, and you're impoverished, but you will be rewarded. Um, and it, but it does seem striking. It's always a product of the so-called high civilizations. Um, which is another curious thing I should mention. Modern Western morality, ethics, is oddly enough reverting back to primitive ethics of the, of the original hunters and gatherers. We don't even realize we're doing this. Uh, oh, okay. we, think for, we think, for example, that um, egalitarianism, that everybody has equal rights, is a modern development. That characterizes hunting and gathering bands, the dawn of the human race. Um, nobody controls a hunting band. An elder male may be respected for his experience, but he can't tell them what to do. And he certainly can't execute them. 
as we have political leaders can do this in our society. And uh, genders are relatively the same responsibilities. Um, you don't have the patriarchal oppression of women in hunter and gathering societies. Um, their sexual practices, rather curiously, resemble ours. Um, they, for example, they typically are rather promiscuous, but strangely enough, they think it's okay to have, for example, a young girl can have all kinds of sex partners before marriage as long as she has them one at a time. This is what our culture is developing into. They, modern, I, you know, I'm dealing with college students all the time. Today they think that a promiscuous person is sleeping with two people at the same time, and they think as long as you sleep with one person at a time, it's okay. Of course, I'm old enough to remember when that's not the case um, in, in the United States and elsewhere. And then um, hunting and gathering societies uh, uh, never practice infanticide. That's killing a baby. They practice abortion. That's where you kill the child while he's still in the womb. And they have various herbs to do this and also physical manipulation, although don't try that. That's really dangerous. But then the civilizations, they develop infanticide. Ancient Romans and Greeks would kill babies that were um, misshapen, sickly, or weak. They were essentially practicing Nazi eugenics, and they did it for centuries. Um, and um, so you get all of these, this, uh, oh, and of course, uh, slavery is an invention of civilizations, and we're returning back to slavery. I know that sounds curious. Uh, Carlyle said in the 19th century, the Scottish says, you, can, you can't really uh, abolish slavery. You can just get rid of the name. And the most obvious slaves in America right now are anyone in prison uh, where they can tell you what to do, tell you where to go, and if you have a life sentence, you're a perfect slave. And in term, that's why the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, made an exception, unless you're convicted by a court of law, because they realized all prisoners were slaves. Strangely enough, military people are temporary slaves. They can order you what to do, even risk your own life. And it's kind of odd we say that soldiers protect our freedom, but we turn them into temporary slaves in the process. Now, uh, various uh, states, such as China during the Maoist area, tried egalitarian armies. It never worked because they're too disorganized. So we do it for a reason. But, um, you know, personally, I'd be kind of afraid to join anything where if I try to leave, they'll send me to jail. That's what they'll do in, when you sign a military contract. I always tell the students I'm kind of, again, odd on this stuff, but I say, you know, I wouldn't work at Taco Bell if they sent me to jail if I quit. So, um, um, so again, we're, we're, our, our ethical system is going um, to the original ethical system. It's, it's not modern. It's actually pre-ancient, and there may be a reason for that. Although I think what's going to happen probably, we uh, have a history in the world where as civilizations age, they become more tolerant and open and so forth. And then what happens is, again, women won't want to hear this, but warlike patriarchal societies from the outside come in and conquer them. Um, this happened again and again and again and again. The original Romans are originally this really harsh hierarchical society, and then by the end they were getting really open and tolerant and giving citizenship left and right to everybody. 
and then they they fall apart and are conquered by warlike peoples on the outside who want their wealth. And um, I suspect um, what we're experiencing with groups like the Taliban and so forth, it may be the beginning of the end. Because ultimately, these really harsh, strict groups, they win. And they, we're protected by our wealth and weaponry, but um, we're becoming a weak society. Uh, op- more yeah. open. I like to live here. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, uh, I was just, hey, hey, uh, Mark, how about uh, when, when you return on July 29th, we can pick up with uh, – we're at the beginning of the end. We, we need to get our uh, – Second hour guest on. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to give a quick uh, like plug of your website? And uh, people can get your book at innertraditions.com and Amazon. Yes, it's uh, it's readily available. In fact, even in a couple uh, large bookstores, not all of them, but like Barnes and Noble, Books and Onion, and so forth. But not every branch will have one. And of course, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, there's a wonderful site from the UK called BookDepository.com, which is free shipping and, frankly, no sales tax everywhere in the world. So that, they probably have the cheapest price. Even Walmart.com now carries it, which is kind of curious to me. Uh, you get free shipping and get a good price on it. But it's um, readily available, and uh, I think the um, hopefully the readers will enjoy it. My own website is my name.com, Mark Mirabello, M-I-R-A-B-E-L-L-O.com. And, of course, I spell Mark with a K like all real men do, right? Right? Is that the same? That's right. Uh, (laughs) So, um, uh, but I've I've enjoyed it. And sorry, I ran over. I now look at the clock. I did run over. I apologize to your other guest. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, uh, we will uh, r- resume in July. Thank you very much, Mark, for the in- insightful conversation. Well, thank you. Nice talking to you. All right. Goodbye. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye, Bye Mark. Thank you. Okay. And I'm going to do my production stuff here. Definitely I'm not going to hang up. It's techie. Yeah, I gotta find. There he is. This should work. Uh, or what? Uh, what'd you think? Is interesting discussion. Very, very. Yeah. Oh, I think we have our guest, Mark. Yes. So, so, sorry about that. Uh, we yeah, we were uh, uh, he- hearing yeah uh, the the story of the, uh, the the beginning of the end, and we just uh, decided uh, we got to put this on hold till you, you return in July, and, and uh, so so uh, so sorry about running a few minutes over, but appreciate you. Uh, your or uh, your patience, but um, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, we have a, uh, another fan favorite returning for a second hour. Uh, David Collis is here 
to discuss his book, Interviewing Jesus, and it, it combines history. He had a great history lesson, uh, anthropology, uh-huh. the Apocrypha texts, uh, in New Testament, psychology, it, it basically profiling uh, a lot of the New Testament characters that uh, you know, really at, at most have just a couple uh, paragraphs devoted to them. But um, it, it's really a very um, insightful book. I I just really ha- have enjoyed reading it over the last uh, few months. Um, it, it, and you can learn more about David at davidcollis.com. That's C-O-L-L-I-S. Dot com. So, uh, hi David, how you doing? I'm doing excellent, and thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, glad you're here. Um, you know, what? You know, we just uh, our, our first hour guest. You have like 900 sources of all these, you know, like. It's just different views of uh, the afterlife from you know, ancient China to you know the uh, you know Roman period. It's just, you know, what are a lot of people thinking today? It's it's, it's really interesting, it, um, and yeah, Sunday was. Mother's Day. Yeah, so, you know, kind of look at um, you know a, a Mother's Day story uh, that we get in the New Testament. And it's uh, in, in the Annunciation. Yeah, let, David. Let's take a little bit of uh, you know, time to look at like what are. All, all the historical sources of the you know, angel coming down to Mother Mary it, is that just all in the New Testament? Is, you know, there's uh, information in the Apocrypha as well. The leg- where are you drawing your information from? To- well. Yeah, this is a very interesting issue because you're dealing with the nature of angels and where the Hebrews um, are deriving their inspiration. So we have two things that you want to look at. We have direct experience. So apparently angels seem to be somewhat of the norm in Jewish culture. Uh, but we also uh, would like to, uh, or at least the other part that uh, about angels that I was interested in is where did the Hebrews come up with this ideas? Uh, are these ideas, and what were their experiences? And when they were in captivity in um, Babylon, the Babylonians had a very strong tradition of angels. So the Hebrews are adopting these ideas. And bringing them into their culture, but I think that there was probably other experiences that they were having that were of um, kind of a supernatural experiences. And angel just means messenger, so 
there are numerous occasions in the Old Testament where messengers uh, or angels um, had direct experiences with people and prophets. And we're seeing a continuation of that idea in uh, the New Testament, not only with uh, Joseph, who had Jesus's uh, dad, who had a dream, um, and then also uh, about Jesus's birth, and then his mother Mary, who had the angel Gabriel come to her and told her that she will be with child and that she would give birth to a son and that he is to be named Jesus. So we're seeing a continuation and a lineage of the interaction of the supernatural and beings from another mm-hmm. plane into the um, the historical dialogue that that humans and and the supernatural have been engaged in. Mm-hmm. The the thing that's interesting about this particular idea of the immaculate conception, and we have the term called the virgin birth. Well there's an assumption that Christianity is the sole proprietor of this idea of the uh, virgin birth, but there have been other people, uh, other great men throughout history who were um, conceived by um, a deity and that seed was carried in the womb of a woman. So such men as Alexander the Great and the Buddha, Hercules, Dionysius, Lao Tzu, Pythagoras, and Montezuma were um, the men. And then in the Old Testament, we have Rebecca giving, um, who was, uh, uh, I'm kind of forgetting the who she was the wife of. I think it was either Isaac or Abraham. And that she was, uh, she gave birth to her sons in a miraculous way. So the idea of miraculous births were part of the, um, ancient Mediterranean cultures. Um, this is no different. So it's just a continuation of that. And of course, really what you see is that when there's this amazing individual with great power who has something to do with the sh- shifting tides of um, the historical direction, these individuals seem to have they don't seem to necessarily be human in any way. They seem to have these extra powers. And so we see Jesus having the same characteristics. And David, in your uh, book, you know, doing some profiling of uh, Mary, you know, Jesus's mom, you know, how do you, um, how, how did you come to uh, the, these conclusions? You know, you're talking about you know, the power and things. Do, do you find her uh, to be uh, a really good teacher, nurturer uh, type mom? I see Mary. Um... I see that there are two tendencies within Jesus's family and I see these traits in him. And then I start to see the traits within his mother. And so though we don't have a great deal of information, at least there is some information. Mm -hmm. And 
that information is is that Jesus seems to have um, kind of a, an intuitive or a psychic ability, and that um, Mary did too. And so I think that there was this relationship that they had because they both had these fairly strong intuitions about the divine and they had divine experiences or supernatural experiences. Mm -hmm. And this is a little different than, say, um, Jesus's father, who is said to be a very righteous man. And so he was probably a, a man who was more inclined to be uh, involved in reading and observance of, of the Hebrew practices and rites and the rituals. And Jesus, you know, adopted all of those at an early age. So I kind of see that his family had these kind of tendencies of wanting to be very observant and righteous Jews at the same time of having these um, other gifts, so to speak. It, it, you know, I was going back through, through your book for some some show prep tonight. Um, you know, you, you do make the point where you know, uh, John the Baptist and uh, Jesus were cousins. Um, John it just really didn't get, give his cousin a job. You know, just hey, you know, you know we're. Uh, you know, cousins, yeah, you know, just you know, just kind of skip some of the apprenticeship stuff, and yeah, you know, just kind of have like uh, you know, you know, just do some nepotism type stuff uh, going on. But you know, you were talking about these uh, family tendencies. Um, yeah, you know, there, you know, there was uh, some different differences between uh John and Jesus's ministries uh yeah, yeah they're, they're both killed at at the end uh, uh, that's that, that, that was an interesting uh family tendency I, I don't know if that it, it's not genetic uh but you know they are walking the boat at the same time that's correct. They were. Yeah, they're, and they only died, what, maybe a couple, two, three years apart. That's correct. I, At the hands of Herod, uh, uh, Herod Antipas. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that was a very uh, insightful, and, you know, you, know, you do draw our attention to. Uh, John being more associated with the um, uh, forests and um, most of his uh, ministry is at, at the river, you know, baptizing people and the diet of eating locusts and um, honey. And you know, Jesus is more associated with uh cities like Jerusalem. Yes, there's a refined uh, it's interesting, you know, when you start thinking about the characteristics of Jesus and of John and what their ministries told me. So, John 
had this kind of a fiery quality to him, mm-hmm. and he aggressive. Well, we seem to have lost two guys. Are you you there? I'm here. I think David dropped off somehow. How did you lose him, Mark? (laughs) I think I lost Let me... There's some kind of Skype connection. Oops. But it was just getting good. Well, it started getting uh, really good at 10 o'clock. And well, yes, of course it also, <laughs> And we got 15 minutes into David's discussion, and this thing happens. Well, I'm uh, sure you'll get him back. Okay. Let's see. Yeah, he... You know, if it was me, I would say, you know, a cat just walked across the computer and, you know, took us off the air. But does he have cats? I don't know. It was like one of those Arizona lizards ran across the keyboard and (laughs) hit 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 something. I I don't know. His his book, his book, by the way. an interview with Jesus was was probably one of the coolest books that I've read in a long time. His his the whole context of the book was that um, Jesus turned up at his door and came in and, be, and he was interviewed, and um, it, it's a back and forth conversation between him and Jesus about about Jesus's life and his philosophy and and um, it, it was really. Um, Intriguing. It, it, it's certainly uh, a, a different way of approaching getting to know Jesus the man. And, and you know, while, of course, the son of God and all of that, but also was a human. So it, his book, it, 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 you know. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, it, it's... I, I, I do like David's approach where, you know, we, you know, the the, uh, New Testament just doesn't have like a wealth of information on these uh, character. And it's not like a Dickens novel or, you know, you know, the 500 characters in War and Peace. Um, Yeah. You just get you know, just like some uh, you know, very general well, uh, you know, information. It, I I think what I liked about um, his book, which was interviewing Jesus, the most was, um, you know, we have so much information on his life that was the public life, his life that that was the fulfillment of prophecy. And while he was, in, in, to my mind, in my belief system, while he was a divine person, he was also made human. And you don't, in any of the Bible or any of the other texts that I've read, get any of his actual humanity. 
that that you know he he was able to laugh he was able to play with children he was able to you know he he was not a god walking amongst humans he was a human who happened to also be a god and and it his book made 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 Jesus so much more familiar to me than the bible does the bible to me in, in many cases is really rather cold because it is it is giving you a philosophy and it's giving you something that that is that is you know nobody has ever chuckled over anything in the bible anywhere so his his book brought jesus into a more um a familiar there's a familiarity you get from reading the book that you don't get from reading the bible and it's kind of like you get a closer feeling. I personally felt drawn closer to Jesus, the person, um, after after reading Jesus's uh, David's book. Did you lose him totally, Mark? Mark, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, you're there. Oh, good. Okay, I'm here. Okay. There he is. And you know, um, I think. Jeff, the talking mongoose, must have made a uh, <laughs> early appearance uh, oh, goodness, to yes. l- let us know that he, uh, he'll, he'll be discussed next Monday. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, we just got David back after something happened there. I don't, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't uh, know. I don't know how much you heard of what I said, David, but um, um. I was telling Mark how your book gave me a greater familiarity with Jesus that that in many ways brought me closer to him because you made him human, even though there, there was that divine part of him, but you made him more familiar to me than the Bible did. And I appreciated it. I I think your book was great. Well, that was the uh, intention was to bring him down off this lofty pedestal and make him a person that we can identify with and understand and and really kind of understand and grapple with some of the types of issues that he had to have grappled with and how he uh, went through his own resolution with, I would say, some <clears throat> ideas that were um, conflicting in cases. So Mm -hmm. it was the way that I envisioned the book was I, I tried to think of myself as a director who was making a film and that I was following Jesus on his ministry. And so I wanted to capture him with the ideas that he was presenting. I wanted visual information and I wanted to hear what he had to say and I wanted to feel what he had to say. And that is kind of a grimy and gritty kind of way of looking at, at Jesus. And then the other thing that was really important for me is that I felt that there was more to him than what was being um, presented. And of course, Jesus is being presented in a very theological manner because it's supposed to fit within this, this particular framework. And I felt that it was important to see Jesus beyond that or through that and then separate that veil so that I can actually see who he was. And the only way that I can do that was to really put aside all of the theological concepts 
and then try to understand how, what inspired this man, what were the influences, how did he arrive at his conclusions, what kind of family would he have had, uh, what were the conditions of the first century, what was going on in the Galilee. And so all of those types of issues all became very important to get a deeper understanding of who Jesus was. And the, the way that I was able to do that, there were several, but the most important one was I looked at all of his sayings. And from those sayings, I was able to develop a type of personality profile. Mm-hmm. And with that profile, I then could say, I know what it takes to do some of these things that Jesus is doing. And I know what I had to do to get there. So I can only assume that Jesus had to go there, go down a similar road. So it's, it's inconceivable for me to think that somehow Jesus was this individual who didn't have to have any kinds of experiences or any adventures or any trials and tribulations. And that he was just this totally perfect, you know, individual and that he was God. And therefore he had, there was no transformation in his life. There was no progression in his life. There was no learning in his life. I just couldn't come to that idea and say that there was that there was nothing that Jesus could have done that he could have learned something. It was all embedded in him. I just can't accept that idea. So because of that, I had to dig deep into his life. And that's what I um, I felt that I did a great job on was really bringing Jesus to life. And David, your this dialogue that you and uh, Jesus have throughout the book, uh, you you do tell us where you're getting uh, this information for the the profiling, like uh, the parables you're talking about. So it's not that you know, this is just your version. It, it's you know, you're basing this on uh, documented sources. Uh, you know the parables that are in the New Testament. So, uh, after, you know, we can get into like some of the parables do have a little bit more of a. Eastern philosophy to him, you know that you know that's kind of like look, you know, looking at the original intent of you know the 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 word, but it it, it is important. We had um, uh, you know our first hour guest uh, explaining that to us. So you know, can can you tell us like give us a sample of like uh, you know one of the parables might have like the uh, that that shows a uh, foreign travel that you know g- gives us a sense of uh, um, his need, uh, Jesus's need to uh, grow and re- relate to other people, or you know, something like that. Sure. Okay. <clears throat> so we know that from modern psychology that what somebody says kind of reveals somewhat of their personality, and. Because of that, I was able to ask myself, 
Jesus's deep insight into the divine is not just an abstract concept. There seemed to have been something that was operating within him that gave him an intimacy with the knowledge that he had. So it's not just that he's thinking about some abstract ideas about the divine. He was having direct experiences of the divine. So that's one thing. The other thing that, and so that opens up a whole can of worms. Like, how do you become a channel? How do you become so clear that you can have these types of experiences where he is able to say, I do what my father tells me to do? I mean, he is so clear that that's what it is that he is sacrificing himself for. The other thing is, is that what you're bringing up are the influences and the inspirations for his parables. So when I started to, you know, one of the things that I did is I I gathered all of his sayings and it turned out that there were 25 pages of his sayings. That in itself is something that um, reveals a lot. I mean, that's all that metadata that you really kind of have to sort through and ask yourself, who's able to memorize 25 pages of, you know, sayings? So something I felt was going on where somebody was writing that down. However, when I started to break up Jesus's sayings and I broke and I, I separated them by theme and I cataloged them by ideas, there were some kind of shocking revelations that I started to see with influences that are coming from the East. So if I can just briefly mention, Jesus has um, a particular style of talking that is very consistent with Greek rhetoric. Jesus also has a very deep understanding of his Hebrew traditions, and he's drawing upon that. So he's looking at some of the, so some of the examples would have been like Isaiah um, and maybe even Jonah and he also has he's part of their wisdom tradition and he's using that but there are there are other sources that he is directly influenced by there is egyptian of uh, mystery religions that he is inspired by but well, he's also inspired by the essenes that's again that's part of the hebrew heritage but then you start getting into some other ideas that he is talking about and there is a buddhist idea there are buddhist ideas there are confucius ideas there are taoist ideas and there are hindu ideas so that begs the question how do you arrive at the ideas that are coming directly from the east do you either go there or is it a universal knowledge that he actually was able to tap into and understand my feeling is is that he probably went and experienced those things because that seems to be what Jesus is about, is experiential, um, things that are experiential as opposed to theoretical, just sitting around reading a book and then talking and regurgitating what he said. He's not that type of person, although that's not to say he doesn't um, – uh, he didn't read and that he doesn't talk about the things that he read, but he has more direct experiences and the wisdom – his wisdom derives from this combination of what he read and what he experienced. Yeah, well, the uh, go to where the sinners are is 
kind of like the same you know, the same concept you know just it, uh having to go out to uh, the people uh, you know could could that be a follow up or a, a lasting legacy of traveling to India or just at, you know far outside of the region oh, i think okay so there's there's two parts to that question um one is that i believe jesus was motivated by brotherhood unity and love mm-hmm. And the other part to his personality is, is that Jesus seems to be very um, interested in travel. He seems very comfortable traveling. He seems to be motivated by traveling, which is why he has a traveling ministry versus John the Baptist. So he seems to be able to put these two things together. And... um the question becomes, why is he comfortable with these ideas? And my feeling is, is that it's because he had these experiences. Again, I kind of had to ask myself, um, and this is, we all know this because of the way we, you have to do something. I mean, you have to kind of learn how to do certain things, but at some point you have to kind of go out and go do things to really understand how it's done. So you can train as much as you want, but until you really kind of get into the, the swing of a, you know, a, a match or a, a game, that is when you really start to blossom and where all your training comes, you know, uh, to a head. <clears throat> and Jesus is kind of working in a manner where there's some training and then there is the um, application of what it is that he was doing. So then there was a little bit of on-the-job training. So the question for me came, what did Jesus know before he brought – uh, before he started his ministry, and what did he have to learn while he was ministering? And that's what we all are. We all have to kind of bring certain things to the table, and then once we do, then there's another deeper relationship uh, and interaction that we have because we're now engaged in something like a ministry. So I felt when I started to put my list together of what would be most likely Jesus learning something on the job versus learning something before he started or at, or what he learned while he was on the job, then I had to, you know, I just went, well, this seems to be likely that this would have been something that he would have had to have known before he started, like who is the father? So he doesn't go to John the Baptist to find out who the father is. So then he can go and start his ministry talking about what, what John gave him. That didn't happen. So Jesus obviously had some connection to the father before he started his ministry. With that, I just kind of went through some others uh, down the line. And I just said, there's, there's certain things that he brought to the table before he started his ministry. And then there are other things that he learned while he was doing his ministry. And, um, you know, that's just the way it works. And he did the same thing. That's an interesting approach. It, you know, it said at the uh, you know, beginning of you know, your segment is, you know, you know, your book in interviewing Jesus is really just two characters. 
you and uh, Jesus, you know, talking for a couple hundred pages. Um, but you, know, you are a character in your own book. Uh, but you, know, you are also the ultimate creator of your character. So how, how, how did doing, you know, writing this book change you as the writer of interviewing Jesus? Uh, boy, that's a loaded question. So <laughs> I, and this is a very important question because it has to deal with my own transformation. So my journey, my spiritual odyssey, started a long time ago when I was 19 years old. And since then, I have just been consumed by reading books, traveling the world, building things, creating things, um, searching out uh, history, going to historical places and sacred sites. And Christianity has been part of that journey. It's been a very um, profound part. It's been a very big part of that journey. And I kind of came to a realization that there was more to Jesus than I understood and that I can fathom. And I didn't know why I was being driven to understand the first century to understand the origins of Christianity, to understand the Roman Empire and the um, the Greek uh, Empire and the Egyptian Empire, and to understand ancient um, Judaism and Israel. I had to learn all of those things. And then all of a sudden there just started, it's almost like all this wisdom had a very, very broad base. And then it all started kind of funneling down into more and more of a point, like a pyramid. And that's when I started to really ask these very kind of um, thorny questions. Who's Jesus? What did he do? How much do we know about him? Is there anything that I can bring to the table that would actually reveal something more about him than what the New Testament says? The funny thing is, is that the New Testament and a few other sources are really all the only things that we really have about Jesus. There's not a whole lot. And, of course, once the, um, once the Nag Hammadi Library was discovered out in Egypt and we had the whole treasure trove of all that literature, well, the Gospel of Thomas was one of those documents that was in that uh, collection of codexes, um, there was a new side to Jesus that is very, very fascinating. It is very deep. The character in Jesus's story is deeply, deeply um, committed to these very abstract ideas. So what I found myself doing was applying these abstract ideas to the New Testament to an understanding of Jesus. Understand, uh, I had to understand more of kind of the the hero's journey and psychology, and I was able to kind of put all that stuff together in one endeavor. And I was drawn upon all of the wisdom that I gained and all of the insights that I had, and then I started to recognize that I was actually operating uh, as if I was trying to solve a puzzle 
And that's when I really got excited as to, you know, what's going on here. I'm, there's more to this person that I'm beginning to under, that I knew now I'm starting to see new pieces. And with that, you know, there's other threads that started to come into the picture. And then I just really started to take off. So my transformation um, just really blossomed. It kind of went into this hyperactive jet mode where I was just kind of flying along with these ideas and I got really, really excited. And I'm finding that my faith has deepened. My understanding about the divine has deepened. I've become a, a better, I've become a very a much better writer because of it. You know, the whole craft of writing has, has kind of opened up to me. Uh, my ability to speak has opened up so that I can, you know, have these radio shows. Um, I have learned how to kind of promote myself in a way that I hadn't been able to do before. So this book uh, has opened up me. It's like kind of cracked open this, these inner shells and allowed me kind of some freedom to move that I didn't have before. And, you know, it's one thing to gather information. It's another thing to put that information out into the world and make it make it work and do something with it. And I found that it was really important to do that. And that psychologically that, that had a big uh, had a factor and it changed kind of the way I thought about things and what I do. And it gave me a great deal of confidence. Okay. So hopefully I answered the question. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's just, it, it is, yeah, I think you answered the question. It, it, it's just interesting to you know, just, you know, just have a author as a guest and just ask how you know, he, he or she changed over the course of writing the book. And it's, you know, it's very similar to you, know, you have uh, you know, like Chaucer, the you know, character in the Canterbury Tales, and Chaucer, the first person narrator and then Chaucer, you know, who, you know, the real part Chaucer who put all this together, you know, it's kind of like three Chaucers in that book. And, you know, he, he did those, uh, you know, pilgrimages to Canterbury. And it's just, you know, interesting to see how, you know, like you're kind of having the same, awakening experiences through writing and traveling. It's just interesting to get that perspective from the real, the real author. It's, you know, it's again, there's like a psychological transformation that took place. And that was, I have all of this information, you know, so you can kind of think of it as parts. I have all these different parts and I now have to assemble it. And I don't even know how to assemble it because I don't necessarily know what it is that I'm looking at. So there was this uh, a process of discovery So I that happened before I started to write the book. But then there was an even deeper layer as I started to write each of the chapters. So every day I wrote, after I was done writing, my mind was like completely active. And so it was just churning in the background. So at night I would dream about what the next day would bring and what I would be able to write. Uh, there were moments where I, uh, I had these very strong intuitions as if there was somebody standing next to me saying, you didn't get any of that right. Think about it again. 
Uh, there were other moments where I had, I uh, was just kind of like in a, uh, like a trance like state. And at the end of the day, I just went, wow, I'm just exhausted and left and, you know, had dinner. And then the next morning I would go back and I'd look at what I wrote and I went, I don't remember writing any of that. And there were number, there were several of those days like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's a process that takes place because you are focused trying to bring something into the world that hadn't been there before. So there's a little bit of a pioneer. There's a little bit of a maverick. There's a little bit of a boldness. Um, somebody said that I had to have been very arrogant to think that I can even accomplish something like this. And so, yeah, you have to have a very strong sense of who you are and what you feel like you want to do. And lo and behold, I'm finding that Jesus had the same ideas about himself and what it is that he wanted to do and how he wanted to carry it out. So it's because of his ministry that he actually expanded his own consciousness even even mm-hmm. more. And he says, you know, the, the, the less I become, the more the Father comes out of me. So there's this kind of interesting... Um, dynamic that takes place when one is involved with a very creative process where the energies of what it is that you're trying to bring into the world are really starting to move through you and you're just a conduit of it. And in a sense, that's kind of how I felt. And I hadn't, I've experienced that in other, you know, with some of the other things that I've done in, um, in my life, but this just seemed to have been a exclamation point. No, I, I think they're interviewing Jesus uh, just show it, I, it, it just seems like there, there's just uh, one of the major themes of it is just growth uh, becoming more uh, aware uh, you know, like those types of having a metamorphosis type yes there's just uh, uh, I think it's a a really well done book it's uh, creative in its approach and what uh, you know really uh, just starting off by getting the book you, you have the uh, you have to take a look at the captivating cover. Uh, what, what is that painting? Who, who did um, my who publisher? Did the painting? Yeah, um, my publisher was the one involved with uh, creating the cover. I I told them what I wanted, and so they came back with uh, a couple of samples. And of course, this was one of the samples and this is the one that I fell in love with. And it represents, um, in in my estimation, it represents everything that I imagined Jesus to be. So um, part of my background is that I studied a, a lot of art history and one period that I'm particularly interested in is the Baroque period. And the Baroque period is characteristic of the darkness of the background and that, that the individual, the, the, the subject matter is emerging out of the darkness. And so they, there's kind of a low light on them, but then there's some highlights. And I saw Jesus emerging out of the background, 
out of that. And he has this human face. He he doesn't have a halo. He's not, you know, this godlike character. He is this man with penetrating eyes who mm-hmm. is looking at you and it's almost like, do you see me? Do you really? He's saying in a sense, look at me. Do you see me? You too can do what I did. And that's what he says to his his followers and his mm-hmm. disciples. So what you're getting in about the transformation and metamorphosis and all the adventures one has to go on and all the trials and tribulations that one has to experience to reach these like really high degrees of wisdom and experiences to have the type of um, life that Jesus had is what we are all supposed to be having. It's what we all can aspire to. It's what we all can experience. And Christianity, I think in a very uh, peculiar way, psychologically, at least for me, sums it all up with the four basic ideas of the virgin birth, uh, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so I look at this um, psychologically um, as the virgin birth is that part of ourselves that's connected to the divine that finally wakes up. And once it wakes up, it needs to get, it needs to kind of have the ego shut up and move to the side and the ego has to die. And once that happens, then there's the ascension mode. So I see Christianity in a very particular way these days and it's not necessarily theological, but it's also there's a mythic element to it, and there is a, a, a psychological element to it, and then there is the the transformative element to it. So I see what is possible in everybody, and that's what Jesus recognized, is that we are all part of the divine, we're all connected to it, and we all need to wake up to it so that we can all participate in it in a way that re, uh, involves brotherhood, unity, and love. And I just, just one of the quotes from your book that does fit in with what you're just saying is on page 133 where you Jesus is talking, uh, the point is to cultivate the heavenly knowledge, be less attached to our base impulses and their fiery desires, and participate with the divine. I thought it was uh, just a nice little passage that summarizes uh, what you just uh, said. Well, if I can go ahead and, and read another passage that also amplifies what you're saying and kind of gives your listeners um, an idea of what it is, how I see uh, this and experience the Father, um, it, it goes like this. And I'm reading on page uh, 64 of my book, and it is um, – I ask the question – Would you say one must awaken to the Father? And Jesus replies, The Father is hidden while the kingdom of heaven is in all and is everywhere. In the Father's wake is the kingdom of heaven. One must be open to both. 
To know the Father, one must be committed to the process of transformation and accept the necessary steps. When the awakening comes, it comes swiftly and unexpectedly. One has to be ready and willing to receive the information this brings, and one has to be willing to carry and share that information with others and not discard it or bury it. And this, um, there's a saying in the Gospel of Thomas that kind of picks up a little bit of this, and it's a little bit more um, uh, abstract. Uh, Jesus says in um, saying 81, images are visible to people, but the light within is hidden in the Father's image of light. He will reveal himself, but his image is hidden by his light. And there is an abstraction there that is, um, on one hand, it seems as if this is gibberish, but on another hand, there is a very profound understanding here, and that is that which is hidden is going to be revealed, and Jesus said to keep seeking. And this is what he was asking his followers to do. Just keep looking and understanding what is this light, because the light is everywhere, and it is inside of us, and we are all participating in this light. And there are many dimensions, in a sense, to this light. So part of the connection is through love. But also part of the connection is through the heart, it's through the mind, it's through our bodies, and it's through our bravery and our courage, and it's through our willingness to be uh, fearless and to overcome the basic needs of the body. Okay, and uh, Dave, we also need to overcome the basic needs of uh, the the couple minutes left in this show before <laughs> – we run out of time, but it's yeah, destiny. Yeah, it, um, you know this. You know, for, for the fifty-five minutes, it, it, it's you know, there's been a lot of inspiration and uh, aspiring. You, know, you used that term just a little bit ago. I, I, I think that's what interviewing Jesus does is aspire and pushes people to keep uh looking and uh where where can they look for interviewing jesus and you know get out you know plug your website with you know the uh, next 90 seconds or so that we have left okay um my website is www. DavidCollis.com. You can contact me uh, through my website. You can also purchase my book on Amazon. And it is, uh, if you just type in at Amazon, Interviewing Jesus the Man, or my uh, my name, David Collis, uh, the book will come up. I have three versions of it. There is the print version, there's an audio version, and there's the electronic version. And I'm also starting to develop, you know, some more material, and I think uh, I'm going to be putting I'm going to be putting a course together called the um, well I don't want to give out what the title is yet, but yeah, it's it's about the the, the process of transformation. Okay, so um, you know, David, it's uh, time to say goodnight. You got thirty seconds left, so you know we will continue with this somewhere down the road and you know it's really want to thank you for being our guest tonight and we will keep talking 
Mark, thank you very much. And Barbara, thank you very much for having me on your show. It was a delight. My pleasure. And and we have a great one next week as well. So, hey, uh, tune in Monday for Jeff. And we have uh, Cole Shack on Tuesday.